Well, welcome back to church. How's everybody? Good. How you doing, Pat? Okay. Glad you're here, man. Hope everybody's well. Hope you enjoyed your rainy weekend. I want to talk to you about an idea. I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, if you are visiting, it would be kind enough to fill out a welcome card. That would help us get to know you a little better and answer any prayer requests apart from that. Mention, if you'd like to drop it in the offering plate, I want to talk to you about an idea so crazy, so lavish, so monstrous, so unseemingly untrue and unfair that we will, you and I, forever have a hard time accepting it. That's how crazy an idea it is, personalizing it, feeling as though it's really for us and not for somebody else. I want to talk to you this morning about a gift called grace. And I'd like to begin by reading an excerpt. It's a bit of a lengthy excerpt from a book called Caris by a man named Preston Sprinkle. I'll begin on page 21. And this is what Preston wrote. Jesus loves cannibals. God's scandalous grace invaded Portage, Wisconsin with unwelcome splendor in April of 1994. It sailed past several churches and seminaries. I love that sentence. And targeted a criminal serving multiple life sentences in the Columbia Correctional Institution. It's not uncommon for thieves and murderers in prison to encounter God's grace, but this day was different. The villain who attracted God's love was a man who had killed, had sex with, dismembered, and eaten portions of, and in that order, 17 young men. Reviled as the epitome of human depravity is human a fitting term. Jeffrey Dahmer turned heads and stomachs with his imaginative acts of necrophilia and cannibalism. His vile behavior elicited a nauseating response when it hit the news in the early 90s. How could this happen? America, a country that has a long leash on immortality, was stunned with disbelief. But what happened in April of 1994 was even more shocking than Dahmer's depravity. While in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer gave a television interview and mentioned in passing that he wished he could find some inner peace. A Christian woman named Mary Mott saw the interview and thought, I know where he can find that inner peace. And she mailed several Bible studies to Dahmer. After receiving them, Dahmer immediately read them all and wrote Mary Mott back asking for more. So she sent more. Shortly after, Mott contacted Roy Ratcliffe, a minister who lived near the prison, and asked him to visit Dahmer to share the gospel with him. Ratcliffe nervously <laughs> agreed. He visited Dahmer, told him the good news about Jesus answered some questions, studied the Bible with him, and eventually saw God's grace flood Dahmer's dark soul with life. Dahmer accepted Jesus as Savior and King, a deranged cannibal rearranged by grace. 
Dahmer's bloodstained hands were washed clean with the blood of the lamb. All the acts of murder, pedophilia, necrophilia, and cannibalism were thrust down to the bottom of the sea, no longer to have a voice in God's courtroom. And seven months later, Dahmer was killed by an inmate with a broomstick. As far as we know, he's still celebrating his redemption with Christ in heaven. Grace, however, was unwelcome when it invaded Portage. Many people were cynical, doubtful, even angry, like the Old Testament prophet Jonah over Dahmer's religious experience in prison. Roy Ratcliffe recalls with discouragement that many people he talked to doubted Dahmer's conversion. And most of these doubters were what? Christians, of course. They asked if Jeff was truly sincere in his desire for baptism and in his Christian life. My answer is always the same. Yes, I am convinced he was sincere, Ratcliffe said. And Ratcliffe is grieved. Why question the sincerity of another person's faith? If a person confesses Christ and, and yet fails to demonstrate any evidence that the confession was genuine, then there's room to doubt. But the cynicism lobbed at Dahmer's conversion did not focus on his post-conversion life, whether there was evidence of faith, but the evil he committed before he came to Christ. Jeff was judged not by his faith, but by his crimes. According to Ratcliffe, these Christian cynics believe that some crimes are too vile, too twisted, too unspeakable to be forgiven. We believe rather in grace, but we've got to draw the line, it seems, somewhere. We've got to put a leash on grace before it runs free and breaks out of our gated community but grace has no leash. It is untamed, unbound, and runs wild and free. Was Dahmer's conversion genuine? If we go on evidence rather than skin-deep religiosity, then yes. But the church's response to Dahmer's conversion is telling. The doubt hurled at Dahmer's conversion gives off the foul odor of a spoiled grace that has been sitting in church too long. Many Christians believe that rebels like Dahmer are unworthy of the fatted calf. They're appalled at the thought of our father running after them. We've got to have some sort of balance, they say, grace and justice. We need to keep grace under control. When it snaps our leash and runs loose, we get nervous. I believe, at least it seems, that in the sunshine this morning, maybe our thermostat is still set on the heat setting. At least it feels that way to me. And if we might either change it to the cool setting or open the door back there, that would be wonderful to me. What exactly is grace? Grace is not a prayer before a meal. Let us be clear. We say, would anyone like to say grace? Grace is not an, an employer extending grace at a deadline for a project 
or a teacher for something due in school. We say Mr. So-and-so or teacher so-and-so extended grace to us. It was due this week, but now it's due next week. What was shown was leniency, not grace. Grace is more wondrous than that. Grace is like some heavenly vulgarity. It is appalling. It doesn't make sense. It defies justice in our minds. Grace refuses to play it safe. Grace does no layups in basketball or quarterback sneaks on Sunday afternoons. Grace gives without getting. Grace, it would seem, is even given to the wrong people. Tax collectors. Half-breeds. Prostitutes. The most lascivious sinners of Jesus' day were by Jesus given what? Grace. Grace. Grace is generous. Grace is reckless. Grace messes with every sense that we have of an idea of fairness, of quid pro quo, of what goes around comes around. It refuses to be, to be, uh, harnessed by our logic. It's mind-blowing. In grace, there is a freeing juxtaposition between what we earn and what we get. What we deserve, what we are afforded. Grace is, as defined by Sprinkle, I love this definition. It's the most concise, clear definition I've ever heard on grace. Unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Isn't that beautiful? Unconditional acceptance given by an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. And yet as kind and as loyal and as loving and, and, and beautiful as it is, we question it. We are suspicious. We look around for ulterior motives. We cannot rest in the goodness of someone else, in God. What's the catch? We wonder what's in it for God. What's the the preacher really trying to, 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 to get us to do today, we're, we're grace-averse. As articulated by a, a writer named Robert Kappen, you and I prefer to think thoughts like these. Restore to us, preacher, the comfort of merit and demerit. 
prove for us that there is at least something we can do, that we are still, at whatever dim recesses of our nature, the masters of our relationships. Tell us, prophet, that in spite of all of our nights of losing, there will be yet one redeeming card of our very own to fill the inside straight. We have so long and earnestly tried to draw it. But whatever you do, preacher, don't preach grace. We insist on being reckoned with. Give us something, anything, but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. End quote. The very idea that there is a one-way, one-directional love that will forgive our failures, that will set everything right, that replaces our fears, we sing about fear this morning, seems too good to be true. Doesn't it? But therein lies the beauty of grace. There is no fine print. There are no addendums. There are no footnotes or endnotes. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. There are no conditions. There are no qualifiers. Grace is pure. Grace is undefiled. Grace is unstained. Grace is simple. Jesus gave us the news, if you think about it, that we've been waiting for all of our lives. We are free from the weight of having to do this on our own to grit our way into it, to, to, to exercise any amount of elbow grease and, and earn heaven, to, to measure up the burden to get it right. Life doesn't have to be this tireless effort, this tireless effort to validate ourselves in the eyes of other people, in the eyes of God. Grace, therefore, is smile-creating. Would you smile at me this morning? That's what grace does to human beings. Grace makes us smile. Grace is fun. It's amazing. As one song author put it, I'm sure you've heard the song called Amazing Grace. Grace is like a ride at your favorite theme park. And you get to wait in line for it. And when we get this, I think it's liberating. It frees us from having to like hold it all together. And, and, and the gospel which says God loves you no matter what you bring to the table. No, 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 God stubbornly delights in you though you be undelightful. He's stubborn about grace. Grace is... God loving people who are what? Unlovable. That is what grace is. We're going to look, we're in the second week of a series called Come to the Table. And, and we see how Jesus uses this occasion of a banquet to communicate a party to, to teach us about his kingdom. Um, here's something many of you will be excited to know. Meals hinted this last week. Meals were central to Jesus' life and ministry. Can I get an amen that Jesus loved meals? Jesus loved to eat. Uh, one scholar pointed out that throughout the book of, of Luke, Jesus is constantly either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or at a meal. 
all right? Like, who can follow that guy? I can follow that guy. I'll go with him wherever he's eating. That's exciting, right? We could literally eat our way through, this scholar said, Luke's gospel. Jesus ate so much that his critics called him a drunkard and a glutton. They did. How many of you are like, man, I got this Christianity thing down pat? Don't answer that. We're like under our breath, Lord, make me more like you. <laughs> Look back up at the menu. Yes, and I'll have cheese curds in addition to my butter burger. Um, thank you, Father, for making me like your son. You know that I'm joking because Jesus also got his steps in, did he not? He didn't have a Fitbit, but he walked everywhere he went over rugged terrain. He was fit. He was a carpenter. His disciples took the boat out on the water. He walked, right? He exercised. You're thinking, Pastor Zach must be the worst Bible interpreter ever, right? He's talking about Jesus' exercise. Do you ever wonder if anything about your life really matters? Do you ever wonder that? Is my life really making any significant difference? Does anything that I have bear, did I do bear any weight on eternity? Are you perhaps tired of of feeling like you get up, you try to make ends meet, you watch the same TV shows at night, and you look forward to your next family vacation, and you just repeat that process year after year after year after year. And that's all there is. That's all the meaning there is. God has created us to have eternal significance, and not only that, but to crave, to want eternal significance, to want our lives to count for something. What Jesus teaches us about living with eternal significance may surprise you. Uh, Jesus, if you'll remember last week, is at a rich dude's party. Jesus himself was not rich. He was, however, very popular, both rich people and popular people. Most people were both, um, got invited to these parties. Jesus did some pretty cool party tricks. Would you agree with that? Turn water into wine? He's probably invited to a lot of parties after that, okay? He, uh, if, if you're, you know, probably Jesus, you know, we're, we're, we're out of these uh, brat buns, you know, do that, uh, do that thing, I got a crouton, do that thing again, you know, that you did all those baskets of bread. And, and so Jesus is here, and he looks around at all the guests, all popular rich people, Verse 12 of Luke 14, that's where we are. So he said to the man who'd invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, the man who invited him, the man who invited him, would you want to be that guy or not? Not me. So he said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We have to imagine this as being a bit awkward for the guy who's throwing the party and for the others who are listening. Jesus looks around and says, when you have a party, don't invite these people. You invited the wrong people. The only reason you invite these people is because you hope to be invited to their parties. 
That's why you invite them. Instead, invite people who have nothing to do with what you're interested in, with your agenda, with your economic advantage. Those people who don't have a nice home for hosting. And what Jesus was telling them to do is actually in their day economic suicide. Because where did people pass out business cards? Where did people do networking? Where did people connect with each other? They connected with each other at parties. And they would meet not only Joe, but all of Joe's friends who were also in business. And so telling them to, to abstain from social leveraging and, and inviting people who, who would bring no vested interest to the party for themselves was a, an piece of advice by Jesus. It was countercultural. Moreover, these rich and popular people, they gave each other gifts. They gave each other gifts. We say the word gift, these folks would actually use the word charis. It means the same thing. They would donate a statue of Zeus, for example, to their hometown. They'd place it in the middle of the city, in the square. Uh, they'd fill up the food pantry. Uh, they, they would give. Why? Because even the ability to give showed off that they had the means to give. And that's what it was about. But they did not do so indiscriminately. They gave only to those who were, in their minds, worthy to receive it. Jesus confronts the norm. And he says, no, invite the foster kids. Invite the neighbors who have no friends. Invite those with disabilities. Invite those who cannot possibly add value to your life. In a word, us. It's who Jesus was talking about. Did you catch that? It's who Jesus was talking about. Got a little speedy. Don't you get it? Jesus is using a social reality to communicate a spiritual application. The gifts are his grace. The party is heaven. Jesus has invited you and I, the spiritually lame, mute, and blind, those who cannot possibly add value to Jesus' life indiscriminately to his party. And it's not just figurative, by the way, of course Jesus demonstrated literally what he was communicating because as a person, who did Jesus naturally interact with? He interacted with a socially marginalized. He showered them with gifts of grace. The woman at the well, the woman with the alabaster box that fell down at his feet, the adulterer who was about to be stoned. Um, Jesus would have been especially drawn to a cannibal with a sick attraction to dead people. He was not saying, relax. My illustration is only figurative. You don't need a love on outcast. Relax. Just be glad you're forgiven. Heaven awaits you. Heavens for put together people like you. Jesus was saying, you have been given grace. 
Grace upon grace upon grace. Free, unmerited grace. You can say grace at mealtime. You can put grace on your church sign. Grace covenant. Grace community. But if you never hug a harlot, if you never befriend a beggar, if you never forgive an enemy, then you're professing grace with your lips and you are mocking grace with your life. If your church and your home are otherworldly sanctuaries where antagonists are loved and people that feel in the community are immoral, you've missed the point of grace. You don't get it. Because Abraham, Jesus would have said, was a liar. Jacob, Jesus would have said, was a cheater. David was an adulterer. Samson was effectively a porn star. He's saying, don't read your Bible morally. Read it theologically. The overarching theme isn't the sinner. It's me. It's about the Savior. Quit trying to draw attention away from me and on to the sinner. It's what I'm doing. It's, it's how I'm revealing myself. It's how I am overcoming people's sin and how I'm keeping my promises. But Jesus, we think, the Bible says God helps those that help themselves. 68% of Christians believe the Bible says God help those that help themselves. The Bible never says that. The gospel says God helps those who realize that they cannot help themselves. Including the poor. Including the widows. Including the orphans. That they're sinners. That their life is, is messed up. That they need to repent. That's when grace comes in. And Jesus is saying grace, which means gift, charis, same word, should fundamentally reorient how we look at sinners and how we approach life. And you may be thinking, what about obedience, pastor? There's grace and there's obedience. Grace and obedience don't tug at opposite ends of the rope. Grace and obedience are partners. Obedience doesn't come before grace. Obedience comes after grace. Repentance comes before grace. I'm sorry comes before grace. God forgive me comes before grace. Cleaning up one's life, sanctification comes after grace. And when we get truly saved, we become filled with the spirit of God. And that is where the empowerment takes place. And you know what? Even the power, even the power is fueled by grace. Listen to what Paul said. I worked harder than any of the apostles, though it was not I, but what? The grace of God that is with me. Or to the church in Galatia, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. 
it's the, the, it's the spirit or it's Christ who lives in me and in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who gave himself up for me and loved me. When you get saved, you are joined with Christ. Your life is now his. His life is now yours. You are wedded to him. You have tapped into him and his grace is what compels your obedience. Jesus famously said, I'll conclude with this, John 15, verses 4 and 5, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. When branches are connected to a nutrient-filled vine, they produce what? Anybody here like grapes? I love grapes. I get mad because they're only bought for our kids. Love grapes. When we put on Jesus, it is inevitable that our, our will our emotions, our desires are meshed with his. Does that make sense? It's a part of who we are. When we put on Jesus, we cannot understand ourselves apart from Jesus. When people are connected to Christ through faith, the spirit empowers us to obey. And that is why Jesus said, in John, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He was not encouraging grit. He was not telling us, hey, double up on your devotionals, buddy. He's telling us to abide in him, to trust him, to surrender our lives fully to him. We don't like this word, but this word is the most loving thing we could ever do to ourselves, to submit to him. His way is better than ours. And it's then that the Spirit gives us the ability, the gift, the grace to obey. Amen?